Mike Drop Dallas is back for season two, and we've got a great lineup for you. As usual, we start with Olympic sprint legend Michael Johnson. He's going to be in town this weekend as a guest commentator for the Pro Triathlon Organization's U.S. Open in Las Colinas. He talks to us about the sport of triathlon, different training methods, of course, the Olympics, and Dallas as a sports destination. Then we're joined by Rachel Bachman of the Wall Street Journal on women's sports and Amanda Kristovich from Front Office Sports on the chaos in college athletics around name, image, and likeness. we got a good one for you. So let's drop the mic and let's go. Welcome to Mike Drop Dallas, everybody, the official podcast of the Dallas Sports Commission. Kevin Sullivan here, joined, as always, by Sports Commission Executive Director Monica Paul and Next Level Marcus Carr. Thanks for listening and following. With this episode, we begin Season 2 of Mike Drop Dallas, and we start with a bang. Track legend, Olympic hero, once known as the fastest man on the planet, Dallas native Michael Johnson. I'm pretty excited to talk to Michael. Monica, what about you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what a way to start season two. I mean, we had a lot of great guests uh, uh, last season and last year, but uh, to start off, Mike Drop Dallas with uh, Michael Johnson, that's pretty special. And he's in town for a reason that people might be surprised uh, to hear about another Dallas Sports Commission event being brought to our town and Michael is uh, involved. Tell us about that. Yes. So uh, this weekend we have uh, PTO, Professional Triathletes Organization. They are hosting their U.S. Open. So first uh, event here for them on U.S. soil. So a lot of professional triathlete uh, athletes, uh, (laughs) triathletes um, coming into town uh, this weekend to compete all over the world, international event. So really going to be cheering them on for those two days of competition out at Irving Las Colinas. So uh, we're excited about uh, what PTO may may bring to town. We've had a couple of mic drop Dallas moments lately with Rangers top prospect, third baseman Josh Young homering in his first at bat. Of course, Luka Doncic is leading Slovenia through the Euro basket competition, dropping 30 plus a night and playing great, looking good as training camp for the Mavericks is right around the corner. And of course, Monica, we're still all buzzing over the, World Cup 2026 announcement of of that uh, phenomenal global event coming to our area. So what's next on the Sports Commission docket? What do you have coming up? Well, Silly, I can't uh, explain the energy and the excitement around the World Cup still. I mean, yes, we we had this announcement back in in June, and uh, there, people were coming out of the woodwork. There's just a lot of excitement. People want to be involved, and, and we're going to get to that point. Uh, we still have uh, some answers you know, obviously how many matches, level of matches and stuff that we need for FIFA, still International Broadcast Center opportunity is on the on the table. But we'll be in the midst of forming our host committee, building out some, uh, you know, subcommittees and additional staff for um, job opportunities uh, for our host committee. Uh, so a lot of stuff that should be rolling out here in, in 2023. So we'll have the opportunity to go to Qatar to the Observer Program uh, take a look at that. But uh, in addition to World Cup planning, that'll continue, uh, you know, for the next four years. Um, we've got NCA men's and women's Final Four bids that we're in the, the midst of. So we've finished up our site visits and we'll be focusing on uh, our bid presentations uh, end of October and middle of November for both of those championships. Hopefully really trying to hone in on a 2030, 2031 um bid year there. Um, a few other events coming up here. Uh, obviously, it, it is football season, so uh, we'll have the State Fair Classic and then Red River Showdown with uh, with Texas and OU. But uh, later in the in the fall, we've got World Food Championships out at Fair Park. So um, I don't know. It's kind of kind of funny that we're starting season two of the mic drop and you, you can kind of feel in the air and it's football season. It's, you know, kind of a new season here, too. So that, some good that's energy. Right. Now, the new time this year for the State Fair Classic, 6 p.m. on October 1st. It's Grambling and Prairie View A&M. Always a, uh, a great event and an important event. Uh, and Monica, with the Red River Showdown on October 8th, a week later, I'm not going to mention that OU has won four in a row 
against UT. But I will say the Longhorns lead the series 62 to 50 with five ties. Your Longhorns played pretty well against Alabama. It was right there. So hopefully, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have recovered from that and you're ready for the rest of the season. Hey, I, I, you know, normally over the past few years, it was like, okay, college football season starts on one day and ends on the same day. Whenever you (laughs) see what type of, what type of team is going to be taking the field and playing and you're like, oh, but this time, you know, I think they put up a good fight. I think we could have and should have won. Um, I don't think Alabama played the best that they could, but uh, you know what? I'm I'm hopeful uh, for the rest of the season and uh, can definitely see some improvement of that Texas team uh, from last year. So fingers crossed. Well, I'll always be a fan, so I'll continue to follow. As always, lots happening in, in Dallas-Fort Worth on the sports and sports business scenes. Back in a moment to talk to the great Michael Johnson and then Rachel Bachman of the Wall Street Journal to talk Title IX anniversary the Women's Final Four, which, of course, is coming to Dallas next year, and much more. What a pleasure to be joined here on Mike Drop Dallas by Michael Johnson. Simply put, one of the greatest sprinters in history. Four Olympic golds, eight more in, world's cha- in world championships. The only man to win the 200 and 400 in the same games, which, of course, he did in Atlanta in 1996. He defended his 400-meter gold in Sydney, the only time that's ever happened. And he did it at age 33, making him the only man to win a gold in an event as that the oldest man to win a gold in an event shorter than 5,000 meters. Dallas skyline high product, go Raiders, Baylor university uh, runs Michael Johnson performance in McKinney. We could go on and on. We'll cover more in our conversation, but Michael, uh, welcome to Mike drop Dallas. Yeah, glad to be with you guys. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yes, Michael, it is uh, definitely an honor to have you with us today. But uh, you're in town this weekend for professional triathletes organizations, their U.S. Open that's taking place in Irving, Las Colinas. Uh, festival, multiple races, professional athletes from all over the world coming in to compete. Tell us a little bit about your role as a guest commentator. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, as, as, uh, as Sully sort of alluded to, I've been commentating now and doing television for, for the UK, for BBC for years and, uh, involved in multiple different sports. And, um, yeah, my role is really sort of helping, you know, to, to help people sort of really understand what they're seeing on TV and bring some context to it. In this particular situation with the uh, triathletes organization for this event this weekend, you know, I, I'm not a triathlete. Uh, I've never been one, never will be one, uh, but certainly have a great deal of admiration for, uh, for what they do. And, and, um, and what uh, Pro Triathletes Organization is doing is really taking this sport that, you know, with these great athletes who are some of the best uh, athletes, endurance athletes in the world, and really sort of professionalizing the sport and, and highlighting the, the talent of these athletes. A similar issue in, in my sport that I've been very outspoken about, you know, great athletes uh, in track and field that, you know, every four years, um, you know, they're sort of highlighted and put out there. But unbeknownst to a lot of people, there's, um, you know, three years in between the Olympics that these athletes are out there doing great things and competing and, and trying to raise the level of, uh, of their profile as well. So I'm always uh, fully in support of athletes that are trying to take ownership of their sport, which the Pro Triathletes Organization does, where the, uh, the, the athletes actually own the, 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 uh, the organization. And um, so it's a, it's a great opportunity for the sport and, and I'm happy and excited to be involved. Well, it's amazing to me. I, I'm happened, I happen to be on the USA Triathlon Board of Directors, so I have a little bit more intimate knowledge on some of uh, what these triathletes have to go through in terms of training. And, uh, you know, it's not just one sport necessarily they're competing in. It's, you know, three different uh, activities that make up a triathlon. But Michael, you were a sprinter and had to train in a very specific way. Could you imagine having to train for or competing uh, in a triathlon? Is that on your bucket list? <laughs> not, uh, not, not on my bucket list, but, uh, but certainly, um, yeah, you know, when you think about, you know, what these athletes go through, um, again, it's similar, very similar to, to, in a lot of ways, to my sport of track and field where athletes are, you know, making huge sacrifices to go out there and train to do what they love to do. And they're amazing athletes um, and very entertaining as well. And you've got, you know, amateur athletes sort of competing in these sports, particularly triathlon 
from a recreational standpoint, they look up to these athletes. They certainly understand, you know, how great these athletes are and the sacrifice that they put in to, to achieve the, the levels of performance that they do. And um, so, you know, we, we feel that, um, you know, in, in these different sports like this, that, you know, the wider public's really missing out. And it's not because, you know, they're not interested. It's because they're not really exposed to it. And so, these are, are some some valiant efforts by um, you know triathlete uh, athletes to to actually change that and and try to highlight these athletes and, and bring it to a wider public so that they can appreciate them for the great performances that they that they produce. Yeah, I'm really uh, hoping that uh, the our general public too will get out there and families will take their their kids out there to expose even the younger kids to the sport of triathlon. Uh, um, you know, it's not the normal ball and bat type of sports, but uh, this is a great opportunity to get kids uh, engaged. And Michael, uh, as an elite athlete, you've kind of taken it to a, another level as you train elite athletes at your Michael Johnson Performance Center uh, in McKitty, a facility you opened back in 2007. Uh, we know you help the pro prospects for the NBA and NFL drafts. Um, but you also have programs for kids and, and younger athletes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I started Michael Johnson Performance uh, uh, back in 2007, 15 years ago, you know, our real focus was on, on youth athletes. Um, you know, obviously, yeah, we, we train pro athletes as well, um, but uh, but that was our focus. Um, uh, earlier this year, we, we moved all of our um, operations uh, to digital and licensing um, um, uh, operations. But, um, you know, youth athletes and what I've learned uh, in this uh, in this last 15 years is that, you know, you give athletes an opportunity to improve. They're going to take it. Um, they're going to enjoy sports more. Um, we're seeing athletes uh, competing. And you mentioned earlier um, you know, not your traditional sport. We're seeing more triathletes kind of through our programs as well. We've seen that over the last few years and, and non-traditional bat and ball sports. So, you know, there's an opportunity for everyone. I was certainly, um, you know, a beneficiary of being involved in sports early on and playing with multiple different sports until I found the one that I really enjoyed. And so uh, I think this is a real opportunity this weekend, as you mentioned earlier, um, to get, more kids out there and families exposing young athletes to the sport of, uh, of triathlon. And uh, because it just, it provides a different uh, option for them uh, other than just the, the traditional sports. Yeah, you, you didn't seriously take up track and field until your junior year at Skyline. What about, the, is that part of your motivation with working with young athletes? That And, and how long do you think uh, they should go before they pick a specialty? Because I know you played multiple sports growing up. How, how did that uh, affect you? Yeah, so, you know, that's a constant, you know, sort of uh, topic of debate, uh, you know, when should an athlete specialize? Look, every athlete's different, and we've seen so many families come through with athletes succeeding, you know, when they specialize early, athletes succeeding when they specialize late. I think the most important thing, if you want to give your kid the best opportunity to find the sport that they can truly thrive in, you know, whatever the objective might be, you know, some families that objective is just to have their kids play sport longer and just enjoy sport, you know, and that's fantastic. And that's what most uh, families are, are looking for for their kids. But obviously some parents, you know, feel that their kid has the opportunity to go on to, you know, a, a division one scholarship or even beyond to the professional level. Regardless of whatever that goal is, you're going to, you know, have your best chance of achieving that goal, whichever one of those it might be if you allow your kid to play multiple sports early on so that they can find the one that they truly enjoy and maybe even find the one that they have the most talent in. But, you know, I get it. You know, youth sports is a, is a very, uh, it's, it's very competitive nowadays. So a lot of parents are actually afraid that if they don't specialize early, then they're going to, you know, not develop that skill level that's going to allow them to be able to thrive. And, you know, they're being pressured to start earlier and specialize earlier, especially if they're in a team sport and if they're playing club sports. So if that's what you choose to do, you know, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. You know, obviously, a lot of the great athletes will tell you that they benefited, myself included, from playing multiple sports and delaying that specialization. But if you're going to specialize, then understand you know, what you may be missing and figure out how you supplement that. So if you're specializing in one sport, um, you certainly want to get into some athletic development training programs, um, you know, and that sort of thing. But 
if you can't specialize, you know, at least, you know, take a break from that sport that you're specializing in. If you if you do decide to specialize every now and then to just try something else or just even in the off season, just do another sport. Um, but, but that, that decision is one that's left up to everyone. And I know, you know, you know, the, the older sort of generation, we always tend to, you know, you know, uh, you know, pound that idea that, you know, you shouldn't specialize earlier. I'm, I'm not of that mindset because I, I, I've seen the pressure that parents and kids are under to specialize. And that's hard to, to, to sort of turn, turn away from. Back, back when you were the world record holder in both the 200 and the 400, of course you earned the moniker world's fastest man. And I remember sometime in the late nineties going out with you after a Mavericks game with Frank Zaccanelli and Mark Aguirre and Tony Fay and Aguirre called you planet as short for <laughs> fastest man on the planet. And we were, we were talking, you know, wherever I was in a restaurant somewhere and Tony Fay and I, at that time were running marathons in my case, shockingly, I know to most people, but I did run three of them uh, many years ago. And you, we were talking about training. I remember we asked you, what's the farthest you ever ran? And I don't remember what the answer was, but it wasn't a very far distance. And you, you started asking Tony and I about how you trained for a marathon. And we stopped and looked at each other and said, this is amazing. The fastest man on the planet is asking us two PR hacks for, for training tips on running or training, you know, guidance or what we did. And it's to this day, it remains one of the more surreal moments of, of, uh, of, of my, of my life. But, uh, as we, yeah, as but we, had, you know, but if, if, if you think about that though, though, Sully, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, that's one of the problems with some of the sports is what, you know, the, the PTO is trying to do this, you know, with this approach triathletes organization is help people understand the sport better. It's mm-hmm. the same thing we have a problem, you know, with in track and field where people think, well, anybody who's a track and field athlete, you know, they're all the same because that's what you're used to with sports. And that's one of the big challenges of some of the sports like triathlon, where you're doing three different events or, you know, track and field where everyone does one event, but there's so many, we're in track and field, we're like five different sports in one. I can't pole vault to save my life, but I'm a track and field world-class athlete. I can't hurdle. I also can't run marathons, which is also in my sport. So, you know, it's it's so different. And when you really think about it, then it, it makes sense that, you know, yeah, you, would, you wouldn't have expected me to be able to pole vault. Right. Right? It's in my sport. Same thing. All runners aren't the same. I'm actually not a runner. I'm a sprinter, which is very different. You know, so when you really think about this, it, not that hard to understand, but I think that we do, you know, some of these sports have done such a poor job, you know, over the years that aren't your traditional sports that, you know, you see on ESPN, which educates you on, you know, the difference between a linebacker and a, you know, and a DB, you know, and the difference between, you know, a wide receiver, you know, and a, and a uh, and a lion, a defensive lineman. You know, they, you're educated on that from day one. Just watch the sports center. People aren't educated on triathletes, you know, and what they do and what they go through from a training standpoint. And you're only educated on track and field as a sport every four years. And so that's why I think this is so important for sports like these to really sort of educate the public because you would have to imagine that you know if a kid's thinking the same thing, not really educated on this sport, then they may falsely believe, well, this sport isn't for me. And actually, maybe it is. Well, our Mike Drop Dallas fans can can uh, watch you through PTO Plus, I believe, on streaming this weekend. But tell us, you know, before we went on the air, we talked a little bit about when I was at NBC Sports and Dick Ebersol tried to hire you in 2001, which would have been, you know, in advance of the Athens Games in 04. And you ended up at the BBC and you've had a great run there since then to this day. So for heading into PTO, this the the U.S. Open, uh, the PTO U.S. Open this weekend. What kind of a commentator are you? Are you, uh, uh, you know, what is your approach in terms of preparing and 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 what what? Uh, since we don't get to hear you in the U.S. during the Olympics, tell us what you're like as a as an analyst. Yeah, so so my my role uh, for the last uh, you know 20 years that I've been with BBC now, it's been 20 years, um, is to is really educate fans and take them inside of, you know, the performances so that they better understand what it is that they're watching and understand, you know, what an athlete may be going through emotionally, you know, technically, mentally, what they're going through. That doesn't necessarily require me to have been an expert in that sport. So, you know, um, in my role with BBC, I cover all sorts of sports, not just track and field. And certainly at the Olympic level, 
So it, it, it requires me to, to be curious, just like I am. Again, I'm not a triathlon, uh, triathlete, but I'm very curious about those athletes and from a performance standpoint, you know, what they are experiencing, how they transition as an example from the bike to the pool, you know, to the water and, and, and the running, you know, and all of the different um, elements of training, uh, how they actually squeeze all of that sort of training in, you know, um, 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 you know, when they've got to train for three different, um, three different types of events, um, you know, how they might prioritize one over the other or what the approach might be from one athlete to another. So those are the questions that, you know, viewers have on their minds. Um, and I guess where I've been able to, you know, uh, thrive and succeed as, a, as an award-winning television pundit um, is, you know, is, is having a keen understanding of what the viewer might be thinking as they're watching. And then I'm able to, you know, either answer those questions for them or pose those questions to, you know, better experts in the sport uh, this weekend I'll have you know, better experts in triathlon than I am alongside me or I'll be alongside them. And um, and I'm able to pose those questions to them and sort of bridge that gap between the viewer at home and the uh, and the experts. So, Michael, you travel the world, but Dallas is your hometown. So <clears throat> my job is to get out there and sell Dallas and bring uh, additional uh, events <laughs> into our city. So give me a real assessment of how do we stack up as a as a sports destination, sports town. I mean, you know, look, as a sports town, I think, you know, look, Dallas has always been, um, Dallas has always been a great sports town. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, because Dallas is such a great as a sports town, it's been a model for others. And so others are starting to catch up. Let's be honest. I think, and it's that, you know, you're starting to see, um, just last night, as an example, I was at uh, the, the SoFi Stadium out here in LA for an event that we were doing for, we were preparing for the LA 28 Olympics and had the IOC in town. And we were out there, one of the venues for the games in 28. And um, yeah, that new stadium, you know, you can see the, 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 the fingerprint of the, you know, Cowboy Stadium all over that place. And you're seeing those pop up in other places now as well, because I think Dallas has been a, a real model for, um, you know, sports venues and, and that sort of excitement around sports and also the economic benefits that sport can bring to the town. So um, always been great, Dallas, uh, from that perspective, but others are starting to, starting to catch up. Okay, thank you. You put me on notice. Uh, I have to get a little bit more aggressive <laughs> here. Uh, well, Michael, I just really want to thank you for joining us here on the, on the mic drop. This has been fantastic. I'll be out at the uh, PTO us open this uh, weekend. So, um, I really, really excited to see that event take shape. So, uh, for all of our mic drop Dallas listeners, go to protriathletes.org to learn about, uh, the event and how you can take on some, uh, PTO us open, uh, this weekend out in Las Colinas. So, um, Michael, Michael, thank you again for joining us here on the mic drop. Absolutely. Thanks guys. And now we are so pleased to welcome to mic drop Dallas, Rachel Bachman of the wall street journal for almost 12 years. She's been a senior sports reporter with the journal long run at the Oregonian before that she's a Michigan grad. So, uh, Monica, I bet when Rachel was watching Appalachian state take down the Aggies last Saturday, she had some 2007 uncomfortable flashbacks. Uh, but with UConn coming to the big house this Saturday, Rachel, I think you're going to be be OK this Saturday. I think so. And there's, of course, a lot of anticipation with the um, Wolverines newest starting quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, who won the job in spectacular fashion. So a lot of excitement among Wolverine fans. Yeah, it's it's college football season. Uh, you know, always great to get that going and, and we'll see what happens. Uh, let's start with the uh, World Cup. Of course, we talk about World Cup a, a lot here on Mike Drop Dallas with the news uh, in June that we've got games coming here in 2026. W what do you think of how the process played out, the cities that got awarded games, and what it could mean for, for North Texas to, to have uh, World Cup back for the first time in many, many, many years? Well, it's it's a huge deal and and it's literally huge because this will be the biggest World Cup ever, of course, with 48 teams. Um, it'll expand just for this event. And then, of course, it'll be the first men's World Cup anyway, um, stretched over three countries. So, um, you know, the 
literally the biggest World Cup in history by some measures. So it's pretty exciting that Dallas will be a part of that, the Dallas area. Um, you know, there have been, of course, there are always economic projections of what it will mean for a city. And I think you always have to take those with a grain of salt because often spending in one place means you're just taking it from another place. But, you know, the, really the unusual thing about the World Cup, similar to, to the Olympics in some ways, um, is that there are a lot of people coming from outside the country to spend money, which isn't necessarily the case when you're talking about the World Series or the Super Bowl or something. So in terms of, you know, tourism, people do tend to come from other countries and sometimes stay for a number of days. And it's often the trip of a lifetime. So they're spending a lot of money. And so um, I, I think that any city that has games is going to see a pretty big economic bump. We uh, also this year celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Obviously, lots of progress has been made. We've come a long way, but what are some of the areas or sports that we still have a long way to go in terms of equity for women's sports? Yeah, I think, um, of course, Title IX governs educational institutions. So college sports is the biggest place where it plays out. And of course, we saw um, about a year and a half ago at the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament, a lot of the inequities. And, you know, a lot of those came about because there wasn't a lot of thoughtful side-by-side -side planning um, at the NCAA between the women's and the men's tournaments. I think that philosophy has really been rectified. They're they're working together now, the women's and men's tournaments, which is great. Um, to me, I think the next frontier in terms of maximizing the potential for women's college sports is responding to the demand that's already there. You know, the ratings are rising. Um, the women's basketball tournament is the second most watched championship event that the NCAA runs behind the men's tournament. And um, and yet, you know, it has a TV contract that lumps it in with two dozen other college sports. So it's really not being monetized like the big event that it is. And um, this is according to an outside firm that was hired by the NCAA to do this examination. So this is, um, you know, this is not just me saying this. And um, so I think that's the next step, you know, for the women's tournament to perhaps be put up for bid um, its media rights so that it might be a standalone um, media event on television in terms of its its value. And, um, and then also just allowing it to generate sponsorship dollars. You know, the way a lot of people don't know that the way the NCA official corporate sponsorship program works, um, the NCA cedes control of it to CBS and Turner, what, which operate the men's basketball tournament. And so it's very difficult for the women's tournament or really any other NCAA sports to generate their own sponsorship relationships and revenue. And so a few of those things, those contracts are some in some cases long term, those need to expire. And, um, you know, people, if the growth continues, I think the NCAA would be very well served to better monetize its biggest women's events. Well, and at least we can now refer to the women's tournament as March Madness, as well as the men. So that was a good step last year uh, we had alicia gray from the dallas wings on and i believe she played at south carolina i think and, and her comment was it's about time what took so long so so that's good now wnba obviously you know celebrated an anniversary as well their ratings uh, have been strong this year uh, hopefully that will be a precursor to the women's the, the media rights negotiations for the women it seems uh, i'm not sure about women's golf there have been some good moments there too but it does seem that the tv audience for women's sports has increased. Do the numbers back that up? Do you see it that way? They do. And you see that with the biggest events. Um, so, you know, for instance, the, the women's basketball tournament, I think it had, um, you know, almost 5 million viewers for the final, which is, which is an impressive number. And that's, that was up considerably. It had a, a simulcast, you know, like the Manning cast with um, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, which, you know, reflects ESPN's feeling that people care about this enough to, to um, staff that. So, and one um, figure that I thought was really interesting from last winter was the NCAA Women's Volleyball Championship actually drew a larger, slightly larger audience on ESPN2 than the Major League Soccer Final did on ABC. Wow. So I think that is just one of a number of illustrations of, you know, there's this unrealized value where these events are sort of organically drawing this attention. There's not a lot of marketing for them. There's not great monetization for them. And yet people are watching them and the audiences are growing. 
Sully, I have to say, just listening to Rachel talk about some of my favorite subjects has gotten me really jazzed over here. I'm like bouncing up out of my seat. I know you can't Rachel, see me, anybody but... who mentions volleyball gets Monica oh, really going. Well, so she, was... she started with that World Cup talk, and, and, and then we went to women's basketball, which we're right in the middle of planning right now. So I'm like over here getting a, li- a little bit excited. But uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. And I, I want to turn to... Uh, I guess women's final four in, in, in Dallas, you know, in 2023, we are hosting um, a division one, division two and division three championships. And you raised some good points in terms of, and I can tell you from behind the scenes in our local organi- organizing committee um, meetings and, and strategy that we have, that there is a lot of communication now between the men's and women's uh, basketball staffs and committees in terms of trying to uh, you know, raise the level of the women's to uh, have some of the same opportunities as the men's championship does. So excited to see that. And we did host a fan with their corporate partner. So we are seeing increased interest uh, to uh, having a presence and activation and, and really raising that bar. So that's very, uh, that's, you know, very, I'm very excited to see that. Um, but I, I know this was a topic that we have discussed kind of before uh, and something that we have put in our our bids, a previous bid, uh, when actually we were bidding on this bid cycle, but just get your thoughts on hosting a men's and women's Final Four together in the in the same city. Is that a good idea? Well, I think it's a really intriguing idea, and it's not my idea. It's, you know, Val Ackerman first sort of popularized this idea about a decade ago. She's the former WNBA president and the Big East commissioner um, right now. And, um, you know, her thinking was basically um, that – Right now, essentially, the NCAA is forcing people to choose between its two most popular events on the same weekend. And if you think about that as a marketer, it's a little bit crazy, right? Why would you want to have your two most popular events compete with each other? Um, And, you know, the upside is the women get their own showcase. They get a separate event. They get to sort of take over a city. Um, It's successful. The Women's Final Four sells out regularly. And it revolves around the women, which is great. Um, I think going forward, as the women's event keeps growing, it is an intriguing notion, the idea that you would combine it with the men's because let's face it, the men, it's a much older event. They've carved out this huge following and um, there's no reason why there can't be some synergy between the two. Right now, you know, you're forcing media, athletic department staff, um, fans to choose between one and the other. Um, in contrast, for instance, in, in tennis, um, you know, the U.S. Open, men and women are together. And what that means is everybody's there, all the leaders of the sport, all the fans of the sport, all the media are there at the same place and the best stories rise to the top. So this year, that was Serena Williams. She was absolutely a star of this U.S. Open and she got huge ratings on ESPN, a record tennis rating. Um, and I think one of the reasons why a women's tennis has gotten so big is because it shares the four majors with the men. So all the sports leaders and interest gets concentrated in one area. You see this with the Olympics too. And I think there's no coincidence that female tennis players and female Olympians are among the most famous female athletes. I think it's because they share this huge platform and they get equal treatment essentially with the men. And I think that women's basketball, um, could benefit from that. So what do you, uh, what do you think the chances that, uh, it may happen? Well, we know in the short term, they're basically zero, right? Yep. Because the NCAA has come out and said that through, I think the year 2031, um, they've, they've already, you know, planned essentially through then not to, to not to attempt this, not to try this. Um, you know, in a, in a broad sense, I think though, um, events are getting bigger. You know, I just mentioned the World Cup. It's expanding teams. The Women's World Cup is also expanding this time to 32 teams. So um, sports events that are already popular are trying to find ways to expand. The college football playoff is planning to expand. You know, um, this is a way to expand, to make a bigger event. It would be more valuable, arguably, on television. It would be more valuable on site. Um, so it is really intriguing, um, in, in a number of ways, I think. Well, I, I think we've been, uh, honest and, uh, open to the NCAA and have told them that, you know, we feel that Dallas is a city that could successfully host both the men's and women's. It is something that 
in a previous bid cycle was in our, our bid. Um, obviously, the men's and women's basketball committees weren't ready to do that or aren't still. But uh, I think, you know, into the future, if they came back and said, hey, we would like to at least try it, uh, I definitely think we're, we're a city and region, especially with well, our venues, uh, but then also, you know, hotels and accommodations and, and other things that are that are needed. We have that to, to make it work. So uh, we'll, we'll continue to, to be engaged there with the NCAA. Um, and Monica, really, I think you and Dallas really deserve credit for being visionaries in that way, because I think you were the first person I talked to had, who had offered this as a possibility in a bid um, before the NCAA even even floated it. Um, publicly, so um, you really deserve credit for being forward thinking on that. Well, we we try to we try to keep up our games and and, and try to um, you know see how we can evolve and and change. So we'd love to partner with the NCAA on that if they ever change their their mind and their direction. So Rachel, we've seen uh, pay equity come to tennis uh, in our national soccer uh, teams. The purses in women's golf are getting bigger. Uh, what do you think is next on the pay equality uh, front? Well, I think it's important when we talk about pay equity to make a distinction between um, college sports and nonprofit sports federations like the U.S. Soccer Federation and pro sports leagues. Um, you know, the U.S. women's soccer team had shown itself to be not only a winning force, but also a revenue generating force. Right. It, it um, sold a lot of tickets to games, um, generated a lot of TV eyeballs and revenue. Um, but U.S. soccer is also a nonprofit with a mission to grow the game. And so. Um, you know, the NBA doesn't have that, for instance, the NFL doesn't have that. And so I think it's important to remember that. Um, but, you know, the areas where that I mentioned, you know, with with college sports, I think, you know, the NCAA absolutely has a mission to serve all college athletes. And so, um, you know, there are a number of areas in other sports, too, where things were shown to be inequitable. Hockey, for instance, is one area where the women were were getting far, far less marketing dollars for their event. And. Um, it was, you know, scheduled, the scheduling was not great and um, they were just getting a lot less investment. And of course, women's sports often came along later than men's. And so it becomes very, very difficult to grow an audience when you're later and you're getting funding that's, you know, one tenth of the of the marketing budget as the men's counterpart. So I think um, for the first step is awareness. And the great thing about the, the whole viral video at the women's basketball tournament a couple of years ago was it really raised awareness among fans, among even people at the NCAA um, about some of these inequities. Um, just for an example, the NCAA corporate sponsorship program um, you know, how that operated was so opaque that even, you know, high level people in college sports I talked to about it really had no idea how it worked. And that essentially the men's tournament broadcasters control the NCAA sponsorships, um, which, of course, um, is makes it difficult for other sports and tournaments to to grow their revenues um, in that way. So I think the awareness is a huge step. And um, and, you know, as the events grow in popularity, uh, I think they really demand better investment to keep that going. Rachel, the uh, I wanted to ask you a question as a, as a journalist about the state of media coverage of women's sports. I thought it was interesting last weekend at the at the Hall of Fame basketball Hall of Fame induction, we saw M. A. Vopel uh, honored for his coverage of women's basketball. ESPN.com reporter has done a, done a lot, you know, and he's covered our other sports as well, but really known as a women's basketball reporter. Mm -hmm. So, so that was encouraging. What about, uh, you know, we've seen WNBA has, has, as we, we talked about ratings are up coverage has been good records with, with, uh, with the U S open recently driven by Serena, but what is the state of, of women's sports in terms of, you know, the coverage on, on, uh, on our, you know, on, on cable and network television. Well, it's, you know, it's still a, a tiny fraction of men's coverage. It is growing, but it's still a tiny fraction. And so, you know, the the challenge that women's sports has, it's it's sort of multifold, but one is that is the calendar. You know, so much of the sports calendar has already been claimed by men's sports and men's leagues. And that is the challenge that women are, are working against. So, um, you know, they have to get creative. I mean, Google, I think, deserves some credit for um, investing in the WNBA and um, 
promoting the league both on its platform and also, um, for instance, I think Google has a partnership with ESPN to get a segment on SportsCenter about the WNBA, which is really unconventional in the history of kind of sports coverage. But um, I think that Google had a sense that they had to do something kind of non-traditional to, to, to try to break out. Um, the, the National Women's Soccer League, for instance, has a pretty significant social media following, especially its individual players. I mean, Alex Morgan, I think, has 20 million plus social media followers. And so one of the solutions, I think, is some of these women have big platforms themselves, and they're basically like serving as their own publishing platforms to promote their, their leagues, their, you know, their teammates. Um, and so I think, you know, getting creative is one way to to sort of try to solve that that calendar issue of trying to carve out space. Um, but also it's, um, you know, it's really on all of us. I mean, I think it's on um, media outlets to respond when things are are popular and reflect that in our in our coverage. Um, and we definitely have tried to do that, I think, at the journal. And um, I have seen it uptick in other places as well. Well, Rachel, good stuff. Thanks for joining us uh, here on Mike Drop Dallas. We enjoy your coverage and hope to have you back again uh, one day. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me on. You bet. And back in a moment with, with Amanda Kristovich to talk NIL. And we're back with Amanda Kristovich of Front Office Sports. I, I, I will say from the top, I am a Front Office Sports subscriber, newsletter reader, podcast listener, and Mike McCarthy, devotee on the sports media beat. So it's a pleasure to have Amanda Kristovich uh, from Front Office Sports. Really, they, they do an excellent job covering the sports business scene. Uh, it's a multi-platform outlet, uh, sports business and culture, newsletters, website, podcasts, lots of good stuff. Amanda, welcome to Mike Drop Dallas. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm also a uh, Mike McCarthy fan as a, you know, his coworker. He's he's great. Yeah, I go way back with Mike to my uh, my days at NBC Sports and he's he's a good good reporter and a and a good guy. Absolutely. So, so Amanda, we're going to obviously talk about name, image, likeness. Uh, I also teach at SMU. So this has been my basically an entire class worth of discussion on Monday that we had uh, on on this topic. So very excited that you're here because I think next week I may ask the students to listen to, to what you have to say. Um, so obviously you've been on name image likeness beat for front office sports, very chaotic to constantly changing with college football now underway. Where do we stand? I think that we stand in a very different place than we were a year ago at this time. Um, so Name, image, and likeness had the rules had had just been changed um, at the beginning of last college football season, and there were players who were signing deals. You know, there were there were some you know bigger name deals, but really everyone was just kind of getting their feet wet. The biggest brands um, like Nike, for example, hadn't gotten into NIL yet. They were a little hesitant, unsure about what exactly um, you know the rules were, right? Because there was a patchwork of state laws many of which were different. Um, some states didn't even have laws. Um, in that sense, we're actually in the same place now because Congress has still not passed anything. But I think the difference now is that um, boosters, donors, and fans have started to realize that they can leverage NIL as a recruiting tool. Um, I'm sure that many of your listeners have heard about collectives, which are groups of boosters, donors, local businesses that pool their resources to either help athletes at a particular school get deals, or they literally just give athletes deals with their own resources. Um, and, and that sort of made a lot of headlines. It's not perhaps as big of a sort of recruiting juggernaut as it's been made out to be, but it's definitely appears to be sort of the way that things are going. So a lot of the Power Five, I would say pretty much all of them have um, have collectives that are not necessarily connected to the athletic departments, but it's just the way that, you know, the sort of boosters are getting involved in trying to use NIL to their advantage. And I think I heard uh, or it came up in, in class that even universities have created departments specifically for name, image and likeness uh, as well, just to. Yes. Uh, manage that. And uh, as you said, you know, there aren't any single set of guidelines necessarily. 
Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. But what do you think, uh, Amanda, is the timeline or any chance that there there will be some a single set of guidelines to be able to implement uh, uh, name, image, and likeness? Well, there have been several bills proposed in Congress. Um, sort of that run the gamut, um, Democrats, Republicans, some bipartisan bills. Um, Joe Manchin and Tommy Tuberville, two senators, are sort of in the research phase of creating a bill that they think will work well. You know, but but realistically, those of us in the college sports world, you know, we <laughs> this is what we think about for 24 hours a day. But Congress is busy with other things right now. And there's also an election coming up. Um, and so I think that it's safe to say that nothing is going to happen before that election at the very least. I think multiple um, experts sort of are in agreement about that. So I, I know that uh, we hear a lot about, about, you know, football athletes or it's the men's basketball team that's getting the name, image and likeness deals. Um, across college programs, are there other women's athletes or women's sports or any of the, I won't say minor sports, but the non-football uh, and basketball athletes that are getting deals? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a major market um, for women's sports. So, um, you know, if, if you look at, you know, women's basketball, obviously, is one of the more, um, they're probably doing the best. But mm -hmm. uh, um, there are, there's women's volleyball, there's gymnastics um, all across the country. Like there are, um, there are deals that are getting done for Olympic sports and they're not as big, you know, but they are definitely, um, you know, there, there is a market for them and, and brands are starting to realize that that, that is uh, the case and that they can benefit from reaching audiences, um, you know, particularly reaching young people who look up to, you know, a college women's volleyball player, for example. Yeah, it's, you know, it's unusual. It's weird to see Bryce Young in national TV commercials. But who has gotten, what are some of the more interesting or offbeat or some of the bigger NIL deals that have that have been uh, consummated so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at, for example, um, what the big three um, apparel brands have done, so Nike, Adidas, uh, Under Armour, They've all um, partnered with uh, women's sports athletes. Um, they've all partnered with um, Olympic sports athletes. They are interested in athletes at HBCUs um, in addition to athletes at the Power Five. What Give our listeners a sense of how these collectives work. So I went to Purdue. There's a thing, the Boilermaker Alliance. Drew Brees recently joined, which made headlines uh, across the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. How does the money, so they cannot... They can't write a check to the left tackle after a good game, right? There has to be some sort of a of a sponsorship or endorsement. Uh, and in, 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 in theory, it's supposed to be done independent of the athletic department. But I thought boosters weren't supposed to be involved in these things. I mean, walk us through how these collectives work and how the money actually changes hands. Yeah, I mean, well, the way it's supposed to work is that you absolutely cannot give an athlete money for their athletic performance. Uh, that is like in the NCAA's rules. Um, but I mean, there's an easy way to get around that, which is, you know, <clears throat> ask an athlete to post uh, your company on social media or your charity or, or whatever, what have you. And um, that athlete will, you can pay the athlete whatever you want. Um, so some of the collectives... Um, are more acting as like sort of agencies. So they're sort of going out into the community, representing the athletes saying, okay, we are, um, you know, we want to get deals for, you know, our men's basketball team, you know, who is interested in, you know, hiring them to come to an event, sign autographs, do social media posts. Others are, um, you know, just saying we are going to use whatever business, you know, my, I'm a booster, whatever business I run, I'm just going to have the athletes promote that. And then I'm going to pay them whatever I want. Um, so there's an easy way around it, but, but you're correct. Technically um, they can't just pay athletes for, you know, having a game. Yeah. And there's no question about the recruiting uh, advantage. And I also think it seems like this may keep some one and done, the marginal one and done men's, 
college basketball players in school for another year. Do you, do you see it that way? Cause they can make, you know, more money potentially by staying and doing these deals than if they were in the G league or playing overseas somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of athletes um, at sort of the end of um, last season came out and said, yeah, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stick around for another year. And several of them, you know, it said, yeah. And I mean, NIL makes this a more enticing opportunity because why, you know, so many athletes, particularly in basketball, I feel like there are so few spots in the pros and they're, they, they take such a big risk by, you know, leaving maybe a year earlier than, than they, you know, than maybe they should, but they take that risk because they need the money. Um, and it might be worth it for them, but if, now that they can make money while they're in college, there's an incentive for them to maybe say, okay, I'm going to be a little more judicious. I'm going to stick around for another year. Cause I can still make money while I'm in college. Shift the gears a little bit over to the uh, college football playoff. Uh, Bill Hancock, friend of the pod, uh, recently, you know, he posted on social media. Here's what some brackets might look like for, for an expanded field. Uh, what, what is your, uh, give us a quick take on, on what you think might happen and when on college football playoff expansion. Yeah. So um, expansion is for sure happening by 2026 at the latest. Um, and that would be the year after um, ESPN's exclusive media contract with the college football playoff runs out, right? So they could do a complete new contract, go to market, potentially get multiple bidders, um, you know, do sort of like an NFL style multi-network playoff. Um, but the commissioners are meeting now and they're talking about, can we get this done in 2024? Can we get this done in 2025? And I think that would benefit all the stakeholders involved. So, you know, I'm not sure whether or not they're going to be able to actually sort of iron out all the details by 2024, uh, because that would be the earliest. It's not happening um, 2023. But there's certainly money to be made for all parties if if that is the case. And before we let you go, we love to ask our media guests at the end of the podcast for a streaming recommendation or a download. It can be a podcast, book, movie, TV series. Uh, what are you uh, What are you watching or reading or listening to these days, uh, Amanda? Um, well, maybe. Sorry if this is uh, too easy of an answer, but um, I would have to promote the uh, the podcasts at Front Office Sports. Um, we are sort of growing our podcast network. Um, my colleague Owen Poindexter, he's working on a podcast. Um, my colleague Ernest Baker, he's working on a podcast. So I would definitely, um, I, I would definitely. Uh, sort of look look at those sorry sorry if it's a little shameless self-promotion but uh that's okay <laughs> yeah we're okay with that what about what about you know from when you need when you want to be entertained a little bit anything uh what do you like to what what are your tv shows or movies that you've watched recently that you're that you like Ooh, when i want to be entertained and again this is this is maybe for the college sports fans um but all american on netflix um right. it's it is, I, I'm sure you've heard of it, but yeah. um, they, that show, I mean, they actually have a spin, they have a spinoff that they just did, All American Homecoming, about um, athletes um, at an HBCU doing NIL, navigating all of that. It's a very mm-hmm. sort of fun show to watch for me because it's a sort of fictional interpretation of what I cover for work. Um, and it's a very entertaining show. So I would highly recommend it. There's a new season, I think coming out soon. So, well, that, that's a good one. We will, we will take you up on all those recommendations. So Absolutely. thanks for joining us, uh, Amanda. And on behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas sports commission, thanks to our other guests as well. The great Michael Johnson, Rachel Bachman of the wall street journal. Thanks to the Mike drop Dallas production team. Icy strain, Marcus Carr, Reeves Eddins of Tony Faye PR best wishes, to Daniel Whitelaw Piscura, who is off for a bit. Thanks to Ren at Vocal Media, our showrunner, Tony Fay. And until next time, thanks for listening, everybody.